0: do you know how your business stacks up compared to average and high profit operations in the industry get your financial questions answered by participating in nhpa's 2021 cost of doing business study participation is free and easy it takes just a few minutes to complete and your personal information is confidential when you participate you'll receive a free copy of the study a $499 value along with a personalized financial analysis of your operation with ratios and other financial tools the deadline to participate is fast approaching to learn more or get started visit your nhpa.org slash codb Welcome to another episode of Tell Me More, hosted by myself, Renee Shagnon. Today, I'm excited to welcome Steve Dennis to the podcast. Steve is a strategic advisor, speaker, and author on retail innovation, and has been recognized by multiple organizations as one of the retail industry's leading thought leaders. Today, we'll talk a little about Steve, his book, Remarkable Retail, How to Win and Keep Customers in the Age of Disruption, and his thoughts on the retail industry today and in the future. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. We're
1: excited. Thanks we're for so having me. We're so to have
0: you. I, uh, I am signed up, I think I get your newsletters. So when I saw you, you were um, going to be having your book, you're re-releasing it, the second edition, I was excited to kind of learn more and I'm glad we were able to connect and have you on the, on the podcast
1: yeah thanks for having me
0: of course so before we really dive in and start talking about the book um, I would love to hear just a little bit about you um, and your career in the retail industry maybe just take us back and and share a little bit with our listeners who in case you weren't aware our audience is all um, independent home improvement retailers so they might be a ace hardware store owner a Do It Best, True Value, another independent uh, brand, or um, we also have paint and decorating retailers as well. So that's kind of who we are serving in our industry.
1: Right. Well, as it turns out, my very first retail experience was working in the home improvement industry. Oh, cool. Uh, Back when I was a teenager, I worked briefly for uh, a now long gone home improvement warehouse called Grossman's. Uh, outside of Boston so that was actually my first retail experience but um, I spent a few years earlier in my career working for a big consulting firm I worked in the consumer packaged goods industry a little bit but I've really been in retail essentially 100% I've had a few consulting clients that aren't technically retail but I've really been in in, um, retail since 1991 Mm -hmm. when I joined Sears I spent about 12 years there working across a lot of different categories and in different functions. So um, did spend some time in hardware and paint and tools and all sorts of things, as well as uh, some time on the apparel side. And then um, and 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 really working mostly on strategy and then the early days of e-commerce and leading up some of the channel integration efforts that we launched back in like 1999, I think at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, then in 2004 um, I moved down to Dallas where I live now to be the head of strategy for the Neiman Marcus group and I worked um, also or had responsibilities for marketing and our credit card business and a few other things but I've been off on my own now as a consultant independent strategy consultant uh, for a bunch of years now and I have been writing and speaking on retail innovation as well for for quite some time
0: yeah Well, cool. Well, so I would love to kind of dive in it seems like you're probably super busy right now so we're excited to have you on to talk about um, the second edition of your book remarkable retail. Um, I would love to just know before we dive in for anyone who maybe hasn't read the book yet. Um, maybe it's on their to be read list or they hadn't heard of it yet. Um, tell us just a little bit about the book and what led you to write it. And is this, this was your first, I know you, you write a lot for different, um, you know, online publications and things like that, but was this your first foray into being a, 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 an author of a book?
1: Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, there's part of it that was for I guess for years, I just I don't know if it's a bucket list item or sometimes people say they have a book in them that they just need to get out. So there yeah. there's an aspect of it uh, of of having wanted to write a book, but needing to figure out, well, what the heck was it going to be about Sure. But um, I guess the real impetus for me was so much of what I've been writing and speaking and consulting about over the last 10 years or so has been how to respond to all the disruption, primarily digital disruption that retailers are facing and how to innovate. Mm -hmm. And so um, having worked on that and particularly when I started to do more speaking, I I had to put together a story to tell essentially and and package my my recommendations. And so when I started doing more of that three or four years ago, uh, it started to coalesce and I started to feel like, okay, well, number one, maybe I have what the book is about. But the motivation, fundamentally, and kind of my frustration in many respects over the years has been that I felt like there are a lot of retailers, big and small, across many different categories, that, number one, don't realize the degree to which they need to change mm-hmm. to, in some cases, survive, much less thrive, in other case, and they don't realize how quickly they need to change. And then probably the third part is i i think there are just some not well understood things that are going on or at least maybe the media narrative or the conventional wisdom is a little misguided so for me the book was a chance to lay out what i think is going on how we got here what's most important uh, maybe dispel a few myths or clarify a few things but mostly provide a roadmap to mount a transformation uh, based upon some of those findings and insights.
0: Great. So what was, um, and this wasn't, I didn't have this listed initially, but what was kind of the response that you got from, um, readers after the first release of the book and, and are you, do you target your, your, um, was your book kind of targeted more towards, towards the retailer, or was it something that consumers might find interesting too? Like how did you kind of um, figure out who your audience was?
1: Well, it, it's a pretty, um, I mean, I, I suppose consumers might find it interesting. I hope mm-hmm. they will. I mean, when I thought about the audience for it, it's really, it's a pretty broad audience in retail. Yeah. I mean, it's very much a strategy book. and But like I said, I think, and, and I think it's applicable not only to retailers themselves, but also suppliers to the industry, vendors to the industry, agencies, investors. So yeah. I think anybody who's really needs to understand how to respond to the changing pace of of retail will find it interesting i think it's mostly for retail leaders who want to stay ahead of the competition or perhaps are worried that they're not as competitive as they they need to be and have some gaps um to fill the response was really good i mean the uh, um you know the funny thing about it i mean i shouldn't say funny the weird the weird the weird thing about it is many people might know when you write a book that's that's more traditionally published, you really have to be done with most of the writing about six months before it comes out. Yeah. And then, you know, there's some editing you can do. So I really finished the book pretty much before Thanksgiving um, of twenty nineteen and then it came out in April of twenty twenty. And so as I'm sure everybody will remember, quite a lot changed. Yeah. In the intervening months. So the book was was very well received. Uh, it's got um, five star reviews on Amazon and it sold well and everything. But, you know, what I started to realize was that was a couple things. One is, um, you know, this may be the only book I ever I ever write. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I want it to be as relevant as possible. And there's always a danger, obviously, when you're writing about some topical thing that, that, you know, you never know when people are going to read it. But but to me, the changes were number one, were so profound with COVID that I think (laughs) it was worth revisiting. Number two, one of the things I believed about. Um, writing the book, which gets a little bit to your earlier question is, I really wanted those retailers that had to make a lot of changes to hopefully get some real value out out of it. I generally thought, you know, it's a big industry, but I generally thought that many retailers that were, were struggling or in danger of getting into trouble had several years to make the changes they need to. And what happened with COVID in a lot of cases, is just compressed those timelines, you know, from three or four years to three or four months. Yeah. So the point of departure, so to speak, for the new book, you know, number one, it, you know, obviously references COVID. It really takes into account that some of the I mean, the core advice is the same, but some of the the factors of the way of looking at it are different. And then I also deal with some particular things that are unique or really amplified or accelerated because of the pandemic.
0: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited. I haven't, you know, full disclosure for anyone listening. I haven't listened to it yet, but um, myself and actually a uh, retailer out in Arizona have our our copies are on, in the mail on the way and um, we're both going to read it and have a follow up podcast that'll follow up to this um, when this goes live, the Maybe not the next one, but the one after, we'll get together and we'll the two of us will kind of talk about the book and then maybe some insights of how it applies specifically to the home improvement industry. So if you're interested in learning more, make sure to tune in later down the line to the podcast to to listen to that kind of second part of this. Um, but so in the book, uh, you do discuss e-commerce and brick-and-mortar retail, and I know for us. Um, for years, and I've been in with our association for seven years now. But you know, people are always talking about you know at least the the sensational headlines are brick and mortars over or brick and mortars going to end. And for us, we have home improvement retailers. They're they're in person businesses, brick and mortar businesses. And yes, they have e commerce. But um, I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on how both of those things, um, how both of those areas of business can kind of work together and and what retailers should, you know, this is a very g- kind of generalizing it, but like kind of look at both both e-commerce and brick and mortar and your thoughts on the importance of both.
1: Well, I would say the most important thing is to stop talking about <laughs> just to be a little, you know, provocative perhaps is to stop talking about e-commerce and brick and mortar. Um, yeah. Customers don't talk about e-commerce and brick and mortar. Um, they don't talk about channels. Uh, it's all shopping to them yeah and um so i mean i think there's certainly a realization that there is a form of shopping where i go to a website and i order it and somebody sends it to my house yeah and that obviously has been um a huge growing area Uh, maybe we can talk a little bit about why one form tends to uh separate the others but you know the the vast majority of customer shopping journeys start in a digital channel yeah, um, most customer journeys that start in a digital channel end up in a brick and mortar store. So mm-hmm. the biggest mistake you can make is to sort of put the, the two um, ways of fulfilling orders or the way of ordering into competition with mm-hmm. each other. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's my, my experience. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I started working on, on e-commerce in 1999. Um, I, I led the so-called omnichannel efforts at Neiman Marcus 15 years ago. And even back then, we saw that digital drove physical, physical drove digital, customers didn't care, it's one brand. And your job is to take care of me anytime, anyway, anyhow, I want to shop. Mm -hmm. And um, the biggest danger is to resist the inevitable and to and to try to fight with it. Now, having said that, I, I guess I'll say a couple things about the way e commerce has evolved. One is, And I talk about this a little bit in the book. I make this distinction, which is not, I didn't come up with this. This It's something I happen Mm -hmm. to like. I make this distinction between buying and shopping. And while this is a little bit oversimplified, um, one way to think about this is buying, when when a customer is in buying mode, they're basically trying to get, one way of looking at it is, they're basically trying to get something off their list. They pretty much have a task to perform. They probably know where they're going to buy it. What brands are under consideration? Not that it couldn't change, but they're kind of on a mission. Yeah. And and value, convenience and absence of hassle is is the most important thing. Shopping is really more discovery Mm -hmm. where and it's probably more emotional. Um, You know, the sales help might be important, trying things on, going with friends, putting an outfit together or for your your industry, you know, putting putting a project together, whether it's remodeling or do it yourself or whatever. And if you really look at the success that pure e-commerce has, and I'll clarify a little bit more what I mean about that in a second. But if you really think about where e-commerce is strong, it's overwhelmingly on the buying side. Mm. So um, and shopping is overwhelmingly dominated by brick and mortar. Now, again, digital is a huge enabler of the brick and mortar experience. But what I see with a lot of retailers is they don't understand that they don't. They think somehow I can, if if the customer is on a mission, somehow I'm going to out Amazon Amazon, and yeah. you're not going to out Amazon Amazon, and similarly, and and um, I imagine some of the folks listening probably have a, a Whole Foods in their market,
0: mm-hmm. and
1: one of the one of the you know Whole Foods is about shopping, Amazon is about buying. And one of the reasons why Whole Foods is, has struggled under Amazon's leadership is I think they don't fundamentally get that. Yeah. Um, so, so I guess the other thing I think about e-commerce, particularly as it relates to some of the headlines um, in general, but particularly what we saw in COVID, is if you think about e-commerce, the original, um, and I go into a whole explanation on this, but I'll try to keep it short. But yeah. the original version of e-commerce was essentially a, a kind of souped up mail order catalog. Okay. you know the, and the companies that did well in the beginning aside from amazon were those that already had a catalog business and essentially they put their mail order catalog online um yeah. and that was the way you were marketed to or a new way of being marketed to and now you could just directly um enter your order rather than calling or faxing which is a hard thing to believe that people actually bought bought that way yeah. so the first wave of e-commerce and mostly what propelled amazon's success was you know, enabling order online and then product shipped to your home.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then there was the part of downloading stuff like music and games. You know, that was kind of a different thing. Yeah. But it's only been recently where stores are more intertwined with e-commerce, either because of home delivery or because of order online, pickup in store, curbside pickup, or mm-hmm. fulfilled from store. So when you hear some of these a, you know, huge growth numbers in e-commerce. Certainly a lot of that is caused by stores literally being closed down and people sort of being forced to shop online. But the role of stores in the growth of e-commerce is tremendous. Um, you know, if you look at some of the statistics from retailers, whether we're talking about, you know, Home Depot or we're talking about Target, um, the percent of what they call e-commerce that actually involves a store is is huge. Wow! So this this general narrative that you know, brick and mortar is dying. Um, well, number one, brick and mortar continues to grow.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: it's hard to say it's dying when it's growing, but yeah. it is growing at a much slower rate than e commerce. And when you look at the troubles in brick and mortar, it's mostly these companies that couldn't decide whether they wanted to focus on buying, or whether they want to focus on shopping, they kind of got stuck in the middle, didn't sure. really commit, didn't really have a point of differentiation. So So, you know, e-commerce is hugely important. Um, I think the, the thing to think about if you're primarily a brick and mortar dominant retailer is how to make it easy for your customers to shop however they want to and not try to out Amazon Amazon, but really leverage the things that you're particularly good at, which presumably is, you know, product focus, customer service, physical married with really great digital
0: capabilities. Yeah, definitely. And I think we've kind of heard that from just retailers we've talked to in the past year, how they've had to, I think, in some ways have to step out of their comfort zones. And many are doing more buy online, pick up in store, all these different things. Um, Whereas maybe before they did a little, uh, they did it a little bit, but it wasn't like a huge push and now it's just become part of their operation, which is cool to see Mm -hmm. um, in our industry. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like the title of the book. I mean, I think it's a great title, Remarkable Retail. What do you think um, retailers can do to become remarkable? And like, what do you think of as a, as a remarkable retailer? Um, you also mentioned, and this might be a second part to the question, but you also bring up the eight essential essentials of remarkable retailers, so, or remarkable retail. So I'd love to hear a little bit about what remarkable means to you and then those eight essential things.
1: Sure. So, um, so I'm using remarkable in a in a in a way that probably you know on the one hand people are familiar with, which is something that's you know highly unique, mm-hmm. really different. Um, but in particular, I'm leveraging um, the way Seth Godin uses it in this his book *Purple Cow*, uh, which I would recommend to people. It's, it's an old book now, but it's a great book. But one of the things he points out in *Purple Cow* is that in this age of digital transformation. A lot of what made retailers successful 15, 20, 25 years ago was based on scarcity. And by that, I mean scarcity of information on the part of the consumer, scarcity of choices, because for the most part, you would buy products from you know, the stores that you happen to have in your town. If it was a small town, you didn't have a lot of choices. If it was a big town, you maybe had quite quite mm-hmm. a few and you could only buy things whenever that retailer was open. Um, and you could only buy for the most part what they had in stock and trying to figure out what the best price was and all that kind of stuff is basically impossible 20 years ago it caused you to have to run around to a bunch of stores and for the most part customers what customers knew about our brand was what we told them through marketing mm-hmm. or through our salespeople well that along comes the internet and you know the internet never closes the internet has an enormous assortment and so now my competition is not you know, the Home Depot down the street and, you know, some other hardware store and Walmart, it's everything that's possible. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, At least, you know, it's at least an option. Right. And if I want to know what the best price is, it takes me two seconds. If I want to know what other customers think about it, it takes me two seconds. So so Seth's premise with Purple Cow was in a world of all this choice and abundance, you know, even very good is not good enough anymore you really have to be remarkable to gather the customer's attention in the first place but to win and keep their business so that's what you know in in a nutshell kind of what remarkable is about so um so the first part of the book really kind of lays out the case for that and and some of the myths maybe like the retail apocalypse and so forth the second part is really the how to go do this and so um there are eight chapters. So I let well I lay out the eight essentials of remarkable framework, and then I spend a chapter on each of the eight, which I'll just mention quickly. And if you want to get into one or more of them. So the first is digitally enabled, which is really this idea of, of the role of digital throughout the customer journey, Mm -hmm. and, and figuring out what that looks like for your particular business. The second is human centered. And this is kind of my spin on customer centricity. Uh the point I try to make is is both to think a little bit more broadly about all the human beings that are involved in your process, you know, from your sales associate to your vendor partners, et cetera. But also to keep in mind that particularly if you're not a Walmart or you're not an Amazon or a Costco, um, that the human component, the emotional component, the connection, is is super important to being mm-hmm. remarkable. The third is what I call harmonized, which is kind of my term for omni channel. The reason I call it harmonized is this idea, you know, kind of if you think about an orchestra that you've got to make all the notes come together in a good way. You've got to get rid of the bad notes and hopefully create a really pleasing, harmonious sound. And, um, you know, that's part of this blur of e-commerce and brick and mortar. Uh, Mobile is um, is the next one and you know in a way that's really related to digitally enabled but the reality is that you know for better or worse most of us are glued or tethered to some sort of smart device pretty much all the time and the role that mobile plays in the shopping process is profound and growing and so if you're not really thinking if you don't have a mobile strategy as part of everything you do you're probably missing the boat and frankly you know if you don't show up you know i could be i could start shopping you know somebody listening to this podcast starts to get bored right they could look at their phone and say "Gee, i wonder you know
0: yeah <laughs> what
1: what i'm gonna get my kid for, for their birthday or whatever right like you can be se- shopping in an instant and if your brand doesn't show up in a remarkable way you may not even get a chance yeah at that sale um the next one is personal which is really um it's kind of a broad topic but it's really this idea of treating different customers differently understanding their needs, their values, their wants and desires and trying to customize or personalize the experience as much as possible. And I think in a lot of ways, this is going back a century ago, right, when most retailers were little local retailers and the Mm -hmm. owner knew all the customers by name and might, you know, say, oh, I've got something perfect for you. Right. But it was all in their head. Yeah. And it was all based on relationships. And certainly that still goes on. But technology allows you to do more things or allows you maybe to reach more people in a more personalized manner than you could uh, in recent years. Um, so those first six, uh, one of the things I take care in the book to say is the first six to me are increasingly becoming table stakes. In other words, if you aren't pretty good at them, you're probably falling behind, you know, they're yeah. like the price of entry. Um, and, and it's I, th- I think it's important to realize that sometimes when people implement things like, OK, now you're just kind of in the running. But that's not giving you advantage. Sure. The last two, seven and eight, are really the things, I think, that provide differentiation. So number seven is memorable. And this is the one that I think is closest to probably what people think about when they think about remarkable, which is, you know, what is that experience that really leaves an, a positive impression sure. on me and, ideally, is something I want to tell others about, to literally remark upon. And so there's a lot of different strategies. It depends a lot what sort of customers you have, what sort of industry you're in. Uh, But memorable, figuring that out, I think, is really the key beyond doing the other stuff well to differentiating yourself. And then the last one is radical. And radical is fundamentally about this idea that number one, the world is increasingly dynamic. It's very hard to predict what's going to happen, what's going to win. I mean, even aside from COVID, just in general, the world's become more volatile and uncertain. Mm-hmm. So we have to build, you just have to sort of accept that and that we probably don't know better or any better than you know the the best industry experts what's going to happen in the future. So we have to build agility in. But most of what we have to do is be willing to take risk and build a culture of experimentation. So so I, I say often that, you know, the first six, they get you in the game.
0: Sure. Seven
1: is the thing that differentiates you Eight is really the culture or the the attitude that gets you to remarkable and hopefully keeps you there because you're just constantly innovating and changing and adapting.
0: Well, hearing some of those, I can think of different examples of retailers in our industry who maybe really excel in different areas. And, you know, comes to the top of my mind, one of the retailers I recently interviewed on my podcast, um, they have a business um in charlotte north carolina and they through the pandemic they did um remodeling they've expanded upon their business their sales floors increased and they even are in the process of adding um a a round like slide in their store from the first floor down to the basement sales floor Hmm. and so you know the adults and kids can go down the slide and go shop you know have like a child moment i guess and kind of have something memorable when you go in in their store like oh yeah the hardware store down the road they got a slide in there and then you can they have free popcorn um, and they do different things. They have they have a dog washing station and they have um, dogs are welcome in the store. So it's just a very um, fun environment. And so I think when you talk about memorable, that's just an example I thought of off the top of my head from. Some yeah, sure. Talk to yeah. so um Well, think
1: about, you know, can, can I just give you one example? Yeah. I don't know if this will resonate with people. Yeah. But, um, so think about. Uh, you know, depending upon how old people are, but go back, let's say, 25 years mm-hmm. and think about whatever you were doing at that time. Maybe you were working in the industry. Maybe you were in high school. You know, maybe you were doing something else. But think about 25 years or so ago, how many places you could buy a hammer? Yeah. And, you know, the answer is probably two, three, maybe four. You know, if maybe you live in a huge city, right? There's, There's more. But in terms of convenient places to go buy a hammer... Mm -hmm. there weren't very many Mm
0: -hmm.
1: now infinite number right and the part so so number one just just the choices are exponential right yeah let's say it's you know sunday night and you're like oh crap i want to do this project in the morning i want a hammer well how many places can you buy a hammer 25 years ago at six o'clock on a sunday night answer probably zero yeah. Maybe maybe Walmart or something, right? Sure. But, but again, you know, anytime you want, you can buy something on the internet. But the, other, the reason I bring a hammer in, in particular is sometimes, right, you just need a hammer because you're hanging a picture, right? You're not, you're not a craftsperson. You're not doing a big project. It just turns out you need a hammer. You want a hammer. And sometimes it's just the easiest thing to do is to run into Walmart or get on Amazon now and have it delivered to you. Sure. Trying to chase that customer if you're, you know, a smaller retailer is, you know, I mean, maybe a customer's coming to you and they'll get the hammer while they're there. But if all that that's the example of buying. Right. I, have, mm-hmm. I want to get this off my list. I don't care to get the best hammer in the world. I don't need a ton of sales help. I just want to get it done. Yeah, that that's the business that is very hard to win back as as a smaller independent retailer. But, you know, if you're doing a co- more complex project, right, going on Amazon to figure out <laughs> how to yeah. do, you know, think about all the different DIY or decorating or, or whatever sort of projects. Right. Or, you know, I don't know if anybody's buying fertilizer on Amazon. Probably somebody is. Right. But yeah. there's, there's things about, you know, more kind of immediate gratification or you don't have any way really to, to get it delivered. You know, so so you have to think really carefully, I think, about where the strengths of a primarily brick and mortar, high service experience lie Mm -hmm. and lean into those. That's not to say you don't have to sometimes be price competitive with the big guys or you don't have to have some of the functionality. But I think, um, you know, where people lose their way is they don't really decide. And I think the other hard thing, because I have worked and spoken with some um in you know industry associations of specialty retailers i think Mm -hmm. one of the thing that's really hard and i hope this doesn't sound um unsympathetic but there is an aspect of of the historical business that is just has gone away Mm -hmm. and is going to continue to go away and that's obviously hard to deal with if you know you've invested in these relationships in the business and you're an owner um but i think you really have to accept You know, sounds like a more spiritual thing, but, you know, you have to accept the things you cannot change. Yeah. And have the courage to change the things you can. And so separating out the reality of the business to focus on the things you can really be effective at is really critical. And I see time and time again, whatever kind of retailer big and small often don't accept the reality and focus on the things that will work to their advantage. But it's hard because, you know, there are obviously huge companies that just have taken up a lot of market share, um, you know, that is probably gone forever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that obviously has big impacts or can have big impacts on on the economics of of, um, the remaining players.
0: Basically, what you're saying, too, is um, if you keep focusing on the missing hammer and trying to win that customer back there, you're not going to. You're not going to be able to succeed as as you would if you're focusing more on the shopper instead of the buyer.
1: Right. Or, or at least the or, or at least the customer relationships mm-hmm. and the mix, because, you know, clearly there's some customers. I mean, obviously, you know, it's easier to think about this with the pro customer, you know, there's a more frequent yeah. customer. But but, you know, maybe it's the the hobbyist or maybe it's just the, you know, the weekend warrior that just loves doing projects. Right. They may mostly come to you for for personal service and attention or unique product or the particular mix that you have that will probably get you some of the business that might have otherwise gone to a Walmart or an Amazon or, mm-hmm. or whatever but but what you're trying to do is maximize your share of spending with that customer mm-hmm. and chances are most of what they're going to buy is the stuff that you're not at risk of losing it to you know the big dominant assortment price convenient guy so and it's you know it's easier said than done I'm being kind of glib about it now but Yeah, it's death in the middle. That's the when you straddle the line. Mm -hmm. Like I sometimes would talk about I picture people like there's a fork in the road. Right. And you're just like, "Mm, I don't know. (laughs) But, you know, it's more important that you commit to the path where you have the real strength, where some of the big guys are not going to be as competitive.
0: So our association represents, as I mentioned earlier, we we uh, represent the home improvement industry independent hardware stores, home centers, lumber yards, and recently we added the paint and decorating retailer to our mix. Um, so, even though 2020 had many curveballs and and um, the industry for us was actually in pretty good shape, at least from the people I talked to, they were busier than ever. Um, they were in the early, the early couple months when people weren't sure what was going to happen and a lot of businesses were closed, our industry was able to stay open and considered essential, which was a right. big um, push from us uh, to really work with all the different co-ops and wholesalers to make sure that those stores would stay open. Um, and uh, it was, it was cool to see the industry kind of um, continue to thrive, although it wasn't a good situa- I mean, it's tough because it was not a good situation in general, but our industry was able to, um, fare pretty well uh, respectively um do you have any insights mm-hmm. or thoughts on our industry um and i don't know i'm sure i mean you look at kind of everything but what are your right. thoughts on what's going on with our industry and what insights can you give to maybe the listeners that are listening today
1: well as you point out and i think will largely be true for um a reasonable period of time i mean there's just a lot of things that are very favorable mm-hmm. um to the home industry you know i mean just you know home purchases home uh, starts, uh, and, and some of the, um, you know, remodel updating sort of trends that, that consumers are doing. So I think both the pro and the consumer business are in pretty good shape. Um, you know, I, I don't try to make, you know, I'm not gonna, who knows, you know, the stock market, you know, while we're interviewing, this could have collapsed or something. And yeah. I anything I say. So, um, I, I guess I would say a couple things. One is, um, just be careful, to understand what was stuff you did well Mm -hmm. versus things you benefited from. Yeah. Um, You know, did you actually gain like somebody pointed out uh, to me that Amazon, I I think it was two quarters ago, grew 27 percent. You know, it sounds like a really good number, except e-commerce was up 35 percent. So they actually lost relative market share. So I think it's important Mm -hmm. just to try to calibrate. Did you actually do better than the Mm -hmm. competition? Or did yeah. you just ride the tide? So, one yeah. is just, you know, again, kind of being realistic about what's going on. The second thing I would say is to be mindful, and, you know, this gets, I guess, you know, probably more into the micro categories of home improvement, right? But sure. there's some things um, that consumers are spending money on that they're not going to spend on every year, right? Yeah. You redo your kitchen. And you know maybe there was more kitchen remodeling or repainting or what have you that went on during COVID, partially because pe- some people had more discretionary income. There was stimulus. They were at home. Mm-hmm. And like oh god, I can't look at that ugly wall anymore. Whatever, right? Yeah. So there's an aspect I think of one-time spending or infrequent spending that's not likely to repeat itself. So some of some of that business is just I think a moment in time. Mm-hmm. Um, so also be mindful of what parts of the, your business are likely to moderate. Um, once stimulus comes off or just once people are out doing other things and returning to work and more kind of uh, normal. The other thing I would say is, and I remember um, talking to the CFO at Neiman Marcus about this when we were talking about some things that, um, which I won't go into any detail on, but both of us were of the view that we should be investing in that were longer term. And at the time, we were making really good money. And I remember he said to me, you know, what we need to learn is to fix the roof while the sun is shining. Yeah. And, you know, so to me, I've always thought about that. Well, okay, things are great and maybe they'll continue to be great. And maybe you're a genius and maybe you got the best store in town and, you know, you don't have to worry too much, but maybe uh, this is the right time to really address, um, you know, if you are making good money, to to figure out how to invest in the longer term because we all know there are cycles right even yeah. if there's not another net pandemic even if the stock market you know doesn't melt down or whatever you know everybody who's been in the industry know there's a boom and bust cycle and nobody's that great at predicting you know is there going to be a recession a year from now 3 years from now who knows yeah. but um 2021 i think in many respects is going to be about as good as it gets like you know you have you know for the most part great comps um Good consumer confidence, you know, we're coming out of a pandemic. I think people are eager to get back to their lives, which will involve spending some money. So, um, you know, just don't believe your press too much and see if some places where you might might invest for the long term.
0: So kind of building off of that, um, what what type of advice would you give uh independent home improvement retailers other than of course uh buying and reading your book
1: (laughs) right Um, well that's that's the obvious thing (laughs) yeah
0: but what other what are some things that might be essential for them to do in the coming years and one of the things i notice and i don't know if you can touch on this as well but um even though many of our retailers have websites some of them are still kind of lagging behind, even in the e-commerce section, or maybe they have buy online, pick up in store, but they don't have a very extensive, you know, web presence. And part of it is just being an independent. It makes it a little bit harder than I guess if you were a Target or a or a um, Best Buy or a larger company that has tons of people that are working on all those different elements. Sure. Some yeah. Things that you would. What advice would you give to independent retailers as they're kind of trudging forward in the next five, you know? few years?
1: Well, the two pieces of advice I give, I would say sort of generically and by that, I mean, it's not necessarily specific to the home improvement industry or big yeah, retailer, yeah. smaller retailer is, you know, really. And, I, you know, this sounds like a cliche, but I think you really need to understand customers and their shopping journeys at a very detailed level mm-hmm. because, you know, it used to be much simpler, right? You ran some ads customer came into your store, you either sold them something or you didn't, or you tried to upsell them or whatever, and hopefully they have a good experience that come back. But given that most shopping journeys, like 90% of all shopping journeys, uh, I'm not sure the specific number for home improvement, but I don't can't see why it would be much different. Since 90% of consumer shopping journeys that end up in a physical store sale have a digital component to them, you know, yeah. where that's, could be as simple as, you know, checking store hours, right? But could be more profound so i think you know for the different sort of products and services you have and the different types of customers you know casual consumer the pro the serious diy or whatever you know you really need to think through where you know how are they initiating their journey and how do you show up at every step i think that can guide you to um, because i take your point it is very difficult to keep up yeah. With the big big guys on all sorts of technology, though platforms like Shopify and Big Commerce, you know, have made it a lot lot easier mm-hmm. um, for smaller companies to get close to what some of the big guys can do. Um, but the more you understand the journey, you know, the advice I give in the book is, you know, map out those customer journeys
0: mm-hmm. and
1: look for places where you can eliminate friction or pain points,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, because chances are, if, if that's something's really irritating you're not getting that customer, or you're just getting them up because it's a good deal or something, but they're not coming back. And they're certainly not talking about you. Um, So do that kind of a friction audit, and point your energy to the biggest opportunities there, which may or may not be website based, but chances are some of them would be. Mm
0: -hmm. And then
1: also find that place to do what I call amplify the wow, you know, what's that thing that's really a thing or two, that's going to create that memorable experience, you know, it may be you know, unique product It may be having a club and maybe the slide you talk like, you know, there's yeah. lots of different things. Um, I think you just have to make sure, you know, it's not too gimmicky because, you know, sometimes those things are, you know, fun for two weeks, but they're mm-hmm. not really going to solidify. But I think it's that customer journey mapping. The other thing I would just say, too, is is just be willing to try stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, find small experiments, see what works. If it doesn't work, kill it fast. Take any learning you have. Um, one of the things I do in my keynote speech, we were just for my podcast, we were interviewing the guy who runs retail for Amazon Web Services. Oh, cool! And one of the things that he advised and he's reminding people, and it was funny because I used to include this in some of my keynotes, is that if you look at Amazon, actually, what I would do when I would present it is I would ask everybody to take out their Amazon Fire phones and hold them up. And of course, nobody has an Amazon Fire phone. Yeah. Why? Because it was a huge failure. They lost yeah. hundreds of millions of dollars. And but. The Amazon fire um, was the thing that taught them the technology to do Alexa and some other. Oh, things. Wow. So now Amazon obviously a huge company, lots of resources. But mm-hmm. I think the lesson in in being willing to fail, but fail faster, fail smarter it, is important. And I think one of the great things, particularly the smaller you are, if you're an owner operator, right, like you can make things happen often much faster than the big guys can. Um, You're probably closer to your customer than Mm -hmm. the bigger guys are. Now, you may not have the sexy analytics or whatever, though, again, those are some things that you can you can often get from other providers very cost effectively. But you have that much more customer intimacy or or closeness that, you know, you just have to make sure you don't get stuck too much in your old way of thinking. You know, the stuff that worked 15 years ago probably isn't working today. And so that's where the marrying that customer insight with and, and that journey mapping with your local presence, your local knowledge, you know, that's really powerful. And, and the really big guys and certainly Amazon just they can't do it. Yeah, know, just they just really can't. They don't. They don't even try, frankly, in a lot of cases.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, so is there anything else you would want to share with our listeners? Um, where can they buy your book? Um, I'm assuming, obviously, Amazon or and I don't know if there's any other websites or places they could find it or or store. Uh, well, they could they, they should
1: be able to find the book um, just about anywhere books are sold. Okay. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, if you want to support which you might yeah. if you want to support independent booksellers, Definitely. Uh, bookshop.org is a kind of a it aggregates all uh, all or most of the independent bookstores around the country and you can fulfill it as an e-commerce order and then the local store um, near you gets gets sales credit for it that's a little bit of money so yeah
0: and then did you say you also have your own podcast that people can tune into
1: yeah we have um the remarkable retail podcast uh which i co-host with with michael leblanc and uh, it's a weekly podcast and we uh the first season which came out last year we talked about a lot of the the particular aspects of the book, so you can kind of get a deep dive. Sure, that we're into our second season now, and uh, mostly we have guests talking about kind of what's new and interesting, hopefully in the retail industry. So you can find that also everywhere, everywhere they can find your podcast, I'm sure.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. Um, It was it was really cool getting to talk to you. And I, I look forward to getting to sit down, read the book and then um you know i'll have to send you the link to it so you can listen when uh myself and uh the other retailer that are reading it kind of have our discussion and kind of dive into some of this as well so it really would be
1: really interesting well thank you thanks for having me
0: Today's retail market is rapidly changing. This year, gain the skills you need to grow your business and learn how to make a profit-focused strategy for the future. The NHPA Retail Management Certification Program will provide you with college-level training on everything from business strategy and financial management to marketing, merchandising, operations, and more. Classes are taught by successful retailers, industry experts, and collegiate professors. Don't wait. Classes start soon. Apply by July 1st to start your certification. Scholarships are also available. Learn more and apply today at yournhpa.org slash rmcp.